yes, they do recover. Generally, they're, they're very good at healing the wounds, but then you have to kind of think of what cost is that to the shark? So if they have to spend like several months putting 90% of their energy towards healing a wound what does that mean for their their development especially if they're young sharks like these ones welcome to the women in ocean science podcast hosted by me charlie young and me mad st clair we're two marine biologists on a quest to elevate the voices of our fellow female scientists each week we'll be diving into a new and exciting piece of research authored by a leading woman in marine science From fisheries biologists to chemical oceanographers to PhD students and researching mamas. We'll be hearing from the pioneering female researchers of today to put a new spin on scientific publications. And smash down some gender stereotypes in the process. So tune in every Monday for a podcast that champions the research of lady scientists and shines a positive light on the work being done to protect the ocean. Welcome back to the Women in Ocean Science podcast. Now, I've got to say, I personally have a bit of a vested interest in this next one because today we'll be discussing the impact of injury on apparent survival of whale sharks in South Arri Atoll Marine Protected Area in the Maldives. What a better way to kick off the week than with a podcast about whale sharks, in my opinion anyway. The absolute queen fish of the sea, but sadly also an endangered species that are subject to a number of anthropogenic pressures. Joining us on the podcast today is Jessica Harvey Carroll, a PhD researcher at the University of St. Andrews. Now, Jessica is researching how stress affects animal behavior and population dynamics, and she's recently published research on the effects of injuries on whale sharks. So today, Jessica is here to talk about her recent paper, which was published in Nature, which looks at the impact of injury on the survival of these sharks in a protected area. Now, marine protected areas are incredibly important tools in conservation, areas where anthropogenic activities like fishing or other stresses are restricted, which allows animals to have a safe haven or a place to regenerate or be protected from otherwise detrimental activities. However, highlighting that these areas might not be the safe haven that we once thought they were, Jessica's paper poses difficult questions about the regulation of boat traffic and wildlife tourism within a protected area. Jessica, welcome to the podcast. How are you doing today? Thank you so much for having me. Um, I'm very excited. Yeah, all good here in Scotland. Thanks. Uh, We are so incredibly excited to have you on to talk about the whale shark um, and the conservation challenges that it faces. And of course, this incredible paper that you've been a lead author on. And it's very, very interesting. Actually, Charlie and I were saying this morning that um, actually last night on Clubhouse, Charlie was having a conversation with another author on your on your paper. Um, So we are really, really excited to have you here today on the podcast. Thank you. Um, Yeah, super excited to talk about whale sharks. So um, let's just kick off with the key findings of this paper. So we found that there was an association of major injuries and sharks staying in the South Ariatal MPA 
it has been kind of mentioned before that it might be just due to them staying in the area and acquiring injuries. Um, we did some further analysis where we suggest that actually it's the injuries causing them to stay. Um, obviously, it's kind of an accumulation of, well, it's likely an accumulation of them both um, mm. because they will be getting more injuries in the MPA once they're there. We also found that the abundance is declining within the MPA, which is very sad. Um, and I think, yeah, they're the they're the main main things we found. So you're looking at sixty one percent of sharks in the study having severe injuries. So what is driving these injuries? Is it just boat traffic? We unfortunately we can't a hundred percent say for sure. Um, and actually, one of the peer reviewers wanted us to kind of go into more detail. We only have photo documentation, so we can only go off of that. But yeah, it's basically all vessel collisions. Um, in the pictures you see of them, it's very sad. You can see kind of propeller cuts into the sharks mm -hmm. and yeah, amputations of fins and stuff. So it's, yeah, we're like 97% sure that it's all from uh, vessels. If if we're sure if we're sure that it's mainly from um, boat vessels, why do you think whale sharks are so predisposed to being injured by boats? What is it about them and their um, behaviour? That's a really good question. Um, they're quite silly. Um, they're really big, <laughs> really <that>. slow. Yep. <laughs> like <laughs> I'm sure they they uh, they're smart in their own way. But bless them, if they there was actually a really interesting paper. If sharks or whale sharks have been injured, they're actually less likely to display aversive behavior to things so if they've been injured and they're sitting on the surface wow. they're less likely to move away from a boat this could be due to the fact that they're putting kind of so many resources towards healing and recovering but that's not a hundred percent known also the fact that they are these kind of massive gentle giants that just sit on the surface. Um, they mainly hang around, I can't remember off the top of my head, I think it's like within the top 10 metres or something depth-wise for most of the, most of the time. <laughs> Mm. So yeah, these, you know, you've mentioned that they like spending a lot of time by the surface. And so they, they're a planktivorous species of shark, which means that that well, that's obviously contributing to a lot of why they're at the surface, because that's where they feed, right? Yes, definitely. Um, and actually, it's quite funny. They are known for eating plankton, but you do see these pictures where fishermen have got kind of small fish in their nets and the whale sharks coming yes. on trying to suck them out. So I think they, they eat anything that I've will fit in their, <laughs> their mouth. Do you know what's funny? I actually um, I actually did see that in um, 2019. I headed, I headed out to um, remote corner of Indonesia to go and exactly see that behavior and it was absolutely nuts <laughs> yeah never seen a whale shark do that before that's amazing um, and they're similar to your study and we'll come on to um this aspect of your study too as well but because of the way that the whale sharks out there feed like that from these nets it also drives residency patterns um so different type of residency pattern I guess to the one we'll discuss today but really interesting yeah. And I wanted to just go back to, you know, talking a bit more about the injuries. I've seen some of the photos actually from um, 
you know, the Maldives whale, whale shark research program. And, you know, some of these gashes on their back look very, very deep and very, very severe. Um, but they seem to manage okay. You know, how can they actually, are they, are they extremely tolerable to these injuries or uh, just wondering how severe they can be? Yeah, it's absolutely heartbreaking when you see them because they go so deep down and they're just covered in them. Um, Not much is known, to be honest. Um, When you're looking at kind of how sharks can recover, there are very few studies actually looking at the physiological effects of scarring and, yeah, survival in sharks. I think one thing that concerns Mm. me personally is... Yes, they do recover. Generally, they're, they're very good at healing the wounds, but then you have to kind of think of what cost is that to the shark. So if they have to spend like several months putting 90% of their energy towards healing a wound, what does that mean for their, their development, especially if they're young sharks like yeah. these ones? What mm. does that mean for yeah all of their other functions? Um, so I think there's kind of lots of layers which mm. are easy to overlook because they seem to heal well yeah and as you said they're kind of once they're injured they're less aversive to boats which weirdly is almost making it worse for them right so they be, they're injured and then they're even less likely to get out of the way of a boat again so that's quite worrying yeah definitely and that's how you yeah that's one of the reasons why we seem to get these kind of accumulations of just it seems to be once a shark is injured they then just get every single injury that's going. And so with these injuries, your paper mentioned that it has the ability to delay the animal's development, which makes them spend longer in the area before going out to the wider ocean. Is this because you think they're staying in the area to um, heal? How, How does it impact their development? Yeah, so we think that because, so sorry, I should have mentioned earlier, these are all juveniles. Um, They're around, most Mm. of them on average are around five metres long. So they are kind of, yeah, sub-adults. So if they, we think they're staying in the area because it's so ideal. It's shallow for them to kind of thermoregulate. There's loads of food going. Uh, It's basically a little haven for them. So if they're staying longer in this area, we know so little about the whale sharks, like the global population, but we do know that they travel really large distances. They literally travel to the other side Mm. of the world. So if these kind of, all these children, I guess, or teens are staying in one area, that's delaying them being able to go on and breed in the population. Um, at least that's that's what we suggest. There's no, uh, like, we can't say for 100% certainty at any point with this. This is kind of, yeah, us suggesting the implications of it. And I, th- I thought it was really interesting, actually, um, in your paper, that you found the majority of the juveniles or the individuals in this area are male, and that global aggregations are mi- predominantly made up of males, which I thought was just really interesting. And again, maybe this is another mystery of the whale shark. I feel like they're all <laughs> full of mysteries. But um, 
you know, do do you know any reason why these aggregations are normally predominantly just males? No, I wish I did. Like literally, I would give anything <laughs> to find that out. So there's, um, it's yeah. still being researched. I don't. Yeah, there is. It is common in animals to have such a divide between the males and females. But yeah, I mm. as the papers I've read, as far as I'm aware, no one's uh, kind of suggested why it's why it's males um yeah I I wish I could answer Mm. that (laughs) (laughs) do you know what's funny like every uh whale shark researcher I've I've ever spoken to has pretty much had the same answer the I I wish we knew and and that's one of the great mysteries still and I think it's I think it's the Galapagos that is the place where they have these mass aggregations of female whale sharks. Whereas oh. as yeah, so they they find a lot of really large uh, female whale sharks out in the Galapagos, uh, which is why I think it was proposed at one point as a potential location for them to give birth. Whether mm. or not that's still the school of thought, I'm not entirely sure. Um, but yeah, it is crazy because aside from that, especially in Indonesia and um, many other areas where I know whale sharks aggregate in the Indo-Pacific as well. It's the same thing. We see a lot of sub-adult or juvenile immature males with some big boy males in there as well. So (laughs) really it's very interesting. And um, to kind of link this into, um, you know, another, another part of your paper, if we're looking at this aggregation in Sampa, this marine protected area that's consisting almost exclusively of immature males um how how important is it to protect them in this formative part of their life um in these marine protected areas if you know it could potentially have an impact on their future yeah that's a really good question it's i mean it's incredibly important we're essentially dealing with the the future of the global whale shark population um so yeah, it's it's really important. There's um something known as uh the environmental matching hypothesis, where it's thought that if an animal during development, so prenatally, if it's if it's stressed and it's then born into a stressful environment, it survives better. But if an animal isn't that stressed during development and it's born into a stressful environment, it's not like it's just not prepared for it. And obviously, because we don't know where these sharks are born, we don't know where they like, we have no idea where they come from. And we don't know, like, yeah, so the yeah, it's very ah, the mysteries, <laughs> the most mysterious fish in the sea, the whale shark. <laughs> So um, let's let's jump on a bit to the methods of your paper now. Um, how how were you conducting this research? Were you predominantly based out in the field? Um, because I also know that you were using modelling um, as well. So tell us about your methods. Yes, yeah. So this was just based on MWSRP's survey data from since they started pretty much. So from 2006 up until 2019. And I was doing the modeling. Oh, wow. That's a pretty big data set. Yeah. Yeah. So it's um, one of the biggest, well, it's the only data set for the Maldives sharks. um, And I think it's one of the biggest ones I've seen published um so it's a really really exciting data set mm. so I was doing the 
modeling side of things, um, kind of putting together all their data and seeing what what was in there really. Wow. So talk us through a capture mark recapture modeling. Uh, What is this? What does this entail? It's relatively common. Um, It's starting to become a little dated, I think, um, when people are moving over to more Bayesian stuff. But it's, yeah, at the moment, it's the go-to method for looking at animal populations. Um, So what's really cool about this is if you can identify individuals, then you can use this method, essentially. So you start off and you essentially, you if you were tagging the animals or something or ringing them, you would mark them. And then you see the proportion of the original marked group that turn up again. It's really complicated and I don't really understand it. But do, do uh, any of us. thankfully there is a nice <laughs> a nice R package. So <laughs> yeah, there's like but yeah, we're essentially fitting regression models using um the mark recapture method. And so when you say, you know, mark recapture method, I'm imagining that some very lucky people have been out in the field swimming with the sharks and they take pictures. And do you also take other measurements at the time? Yes. Yeah. So the way the surveys work is um, we have a set route that we go along. Uh, When a shark is sighted, volunteers and staff hop in the water. So whale sharks have completely unique spot patterns. So if you get a photo of them, usually they're sort of left or right flank area. It's literally like a little little passport for them. So you can, yeah, identify the individuals. So volunteers when they and staff, when you see a whale shark, hop in the water, take a picture. Um, and they also take other measurements such as length, if it's possible. Some encounters don't last long enough. So the kind of priority is to get to get a picture of that individual. That sounds so much fun. yeah oh my gosh I think one of the most fascinating things about whale sharks and manta rays is that we have this ability to just you know identify them from a photograph um, with these brilliant spot patterns on the whale shark and spot belly patterns on a manta ray that act as you say like a passport or like a human fingerprint so it's a really brilliant way to study them and also thanks for describing the statistics um, and the modeling the reason why we ask is because I think there's this illusion that when people study whale sharks or manta rays or other very charismatic megafauna, that you're always the person in the water alongside the shark when, as you know, you've just written this absolutely brilliant paper, but that's not always the case. And you've employed completely different uh, methods to um, actually turn that data into something very, very valuable that we can use to help with their protection, conservation and their future management. Yeah, definitely. So I think um, without kind of taking samples and uh, kind of being invasive, um, there's only so much you can do unless you start to to go down the the modelling route. Um, But yeah, it's important to remember that kind of all modelling is wrong. You just kind of hope that it might make sense because you are kind of taking something and making it abstract. So now, obviously, um, let's come on to a bit of the, you know, the discussion, the implications of the paper. So let's talk about MPAs, let's talk about ecotourism. Charlie, where should we start? 
So, you know, obviously you've published this paper, which gives is really important for us understanding the impacts of ecotourism, right? Because ecotourism, I think, has a lot of benefits, but as your research shows that it's potentially also having pretty detrimental impacts on whale sharks. So, Samper is a marine protected area, but what additional kind of conservation management guidelines would you like in place as a result of this paper or that you hope that the government might introduce? That's, yeah, really good question. We are hoping. So, I mean, if people follow the rules, generally, it should be uh, like experiences with the whale sharks and the actual welfare of the whale sharks should be improved. Um, one of the issues is speeding vessels, so kind of speed boats and boats going a bit faster than they they should be. Um, so obviously they just hit the shark with mm. so much impact, and the shark doesn't have time to move out the way. Although <laughs> they don't seem to move out the way much to start off with. Um, <laughs> So definitely reducing vessel speed is is a main one. Um, ideally, putting stricter kind of enforcements of current regulations. So the amount of people that you can have in it at an encounter. Um, I mean, in the ideal world, the MPA would be sort of expanded to cover loads more area because they can quite easily swim the distance three times of the MPA in a day. So, it, yeah, mm. in a perfect world, it would be bigger. Um, but then you can't, I guess, it's not practical <laughs> to make the whole of the ocean an MPA. <laughs> um, just to recap for our listen- listeners, Sampa is the South Arri Atoll Marine Protected Area, um, which is the location for where this uh, study took place. Off the back of what you just said, Jess, what are um, the actual regulations that are currently in place for Sampa? So there are regulations saying about the vessel speed, um, also the amount of vessels per shark. A lot of it is just a case of it not being enforced. Obviously, it's really hard to properly enforce it. So there are kind of regulations trying to reduce the stress on the sharks. Um, But, sorry, I've been using the phrase regulations. They're currently voluntary. So they're not really even regulations. It's just suggestions. Sorry, should have mentioned that way sooner. Um, So, yeah, they're (laughs) suggestions and it's kind of up to the people whether or not, or up to the operators whether or not you follow them. So... Yeah, definitely turning them into enforceable regulations would be would be a start. Yeah, that sounds like a pretty necessary step because anything that's voluntary doesn't sound like it's necessarily going to be followed. So I think that would be brilliant, and it's great to hear that off the back of this paper, that's something that you're you're moving towards. Yeah, I actually saw uh, when I was in Bar Atoll with uh, Manta Trust back in 2019, when we had the occasional whale shark come cruising through in the season, it was absolute madness because all of the resorts were very, very keen and also the local dive shops to get their guests to have this whale shark interaction. 
Um, and though in Bar Atal, where I was, there's now very, um, very, very good legislation which protects the manta rays and where boats can go with regards to the Hanafaru Bay protected area. For whale sharks, it's an absolutely different story. And I will always remember this one day in Bar Atal where this massive whale shark had got stuck in this lagoon, lagoon, I think with it was a high tide. And honestly, about, I can't remember how many boats turned up, but it wasn't just dangerous for the whale shark, but it was dangerous for the swimmers in the water. It was absolute carnage. Um, And as you say, I think there had been a general kind of verbal understanding between resorts that only X number of boats would be going to these things. But aside from, I think, that voluntary agreement not to step on people's toes, um, in on this particular day, it was an absolute disaster because I think in this particular season as well, there hadn't been that many whale shark sightings. So, you know, there was that added pressure for resorts to um, get their tourists to have that interaction with them. Gosh. And um, this kind of actually leads me on to my next question for you, um, Jess, which is, Obviously, around the world, uh, we have a lot of what we call uh, paper parks, which is where these marine protected areas are implemented, um, but not necessarily enforced. And often, you know, they've just been underwritten into legislation by government so that they can say that they're honouring their contribution towards mm. uh, protecting X number of kilometres or whatever X species um, within the ocean. So what what are your thoughts on Sampa as a marine protected area? Do you think at the moment you could you would be considering it a paper park um and and if so do you think there is the scope with the research that you've done and perhaps other research done in the region to drive better regulation to prevent it from being this way if you do consider it to be a paper park yeah definitely like it's you need to at least have the the, the suggestions as regulations because without that no one's going to follow them then it, i wouldn't class it as an MPA because you're not protecting the animals and everything else in the area. So it definitely needs to be enforced um, and potentially kind of adding the uh like uh limiting the types of vessels which are in the area yeah we definitely need to enforce it for it to be effective as an MPA. Yeah. Yeah. I would agree. I think you're completely right. Um, and something from your paper that I, I took away is that actually you're seeing that whale sharks are steadily declining in this area over time. So you had quite a large data set. And I think that you included data from 2014 to 19. And you showed over those years that there's been this steady decrease, whether that's because of increased injuries or actually just declining populations worldwide. But that's quite a troubling finding, not only for the species, but also for this entire ecotourism economy that's been built up in this area. And so I wondered what your thoughts are on that. Do you think it's the injuries and the increased pressure from people? Or do you think that just whale sharks in general, um, because they're in global decline, this is just a consequence of that? To be honest, it's really hard to say. It's likely it's due to the fact that it's they're in a global decline because they are this species that kind of moves so far. So it's definitely kind of a reflection of that. Whether or not sharks are being deterred from the area is is another kind of question. Um, I think it's likely a bit of both. Mm. Probably more the fact that they are just in a global decline. Yeah. 
Gosh, it's it's really not a bright future for um, whale sharks. But I guess on one kind of silver lining is that they draw in a huge number of um, dollars each year in terms of ecotourism. So Sampa is, as you said, it's a pretty busy area for tourists. What kind of levels of ecotourism are we seeing in uh, in Sampa? Is it still increasing year by year? Yeah, yeah, definitely. Uh, we don't know about last year. Obviously, Corona will have had a <laughs> wormed its way into that as well. Um, but yeah, it's definitely increasing. It's a very significant part of uh, the income of a lot of people. And obviously, kind of as people are becoming more and more aware of whale sharks, people want to see them. So yeah, if anything, I would say ecotourism is becoming more and more prevalent. Yeah, it's, I mean, COVID, as you say, has had a huge impact on the ecotourism sector. And I guess it's it's quite worrying considering, you know, as Mad said, it brings such an astronomical amount of money into the area and that income has been lost. And so I've, I've heard that there's anecdotal reports that shark fishing and hunting and illegal activities have been in- increasing in the area as a consequence. Is that true? Yes, that is true. There are. And I think it's something that people shouldn't sort of shy away from as well, because we need to know what's going on to help these sharks. Um, Without the tourism, people don't have an income. So they're going to resort Mm. to what they know, which is the sharks, um, and they're going to have to make money from them one way or another. Obviously, it's not everyone involved. There are like people are still trying to protect them um there is finning which is going on um which is yeah heartbreaking and um what is really interesting actually off the back of this and it's it's very interesting to hear you say that is that um this week the Maldives has actually just announced that it is considering revoking its 10-year ban on on shark fishing which is absolutely nuts because the Maldives made its territorial waters into a shark sanctuary back in 2010 um, with a complete total ban on exports um and at the time it was the second nation only to announce a blanket protection like this so we're talking about an economic exclusion zone of about 90,000 square mm. kilometers. You know, how detrimental do you think this would be if uh, this ban on shark fishing would be lifted in the Maldives? I mean, if you lift the ban, there will not be any sharks left. They are under so much pressure as it is when they're not being kind of hunted in specific areas that they won't, the populations will not cope. It will have an effect downstream on the ecosystems it's i can't even kind of comprehend why Mm. it would be suggested sharks just won't exist basically if you reintroduce that Mm. it's obvious that sharks are under you know a huge amount of pressure in this area and it is extremely troubling that they might be considering sort of revoking this ban but I, what I want to want to do now is kind of take the conversation on to, I guess, a happier note about, you know, what can we do? It's obvious that sharks are in this area. Whale sharks are facing increasing pressures from lots of different angles, from you know increased boat traffic because of ecotourism, and then also potentially higher levels of hunting. Um, so, what can we do? What can the average person do to help protect whale sharks? 
I think there's, yeah, that's a really good question. And it's easy to feel like a single person can't do anything, but actually you can. Mm -hmm. First of all, you can raise awareness so you can not shy away from the conversations about what is actually happening to these animals. And also just generally encouraging people to think positively of sharks as a whole for the for the kind of species mm. you can um be proactive so if you are going to go on a ecotourism thing so ecotourism isn't bad it's it given the kind of current global situation it's the best out of everything because we've seen from covid mm. if we don't have ecotourism everyone's going to start killing things um so when it's done properly, <laughs> I love was that. very succinctly put. I love it. <laughs> <laughs> um, if it's yeah, if it's done properly, then it's not a bad thing. If there are regulations that are followed and enforced, then it can be really good for it can help build relationships, yeah. how well humans and animals get along. Um, so sorry, just to go back to my point. If you are on a tourism like an ecotourism trip you can actually just look and see what the operator's doing if you don't feel comfortable you can either say to them about it or you can actually just say to the other individuals who are on the trip with you because they might not know that actually having a shark surrounded by a hundred odd people is going to be stressful for it so even on like a low key level if you just start planting that seed that actually it's doing damage to them and eventually if there's enough kind of I guess pressure from the the tourists themselves people have to change what they're doing um and yeah obviously on like the the big picture don't don't buy anything with shark products in or anything um (laughs) I Yeah. yeah I think just kind of raising awareness but you do have to understand that it's like, um, I guess at the end of the day, it's the government that need to put stuff in place, but that, that only comes from pressure from, from people. Yeah, exactly. And I think what you said about supporting ecotourism, you know, being the lesser of the evils is, is really important, especially considering that, um, when you look at these financial, um, valuations, let's say, of of sharks that have been done by by previous studies that have actually managed to drive uh, legislation. For example, in the Maldives, the part of the reason for creating the shark sanctuary is is the piece of research that valued a shark as thirty two dollars for a fisherman at that one time price for you know handing it over for a shark fin, versus mm. the. that it would actually contribute to, you know, the economy for for tourism because that whole lifespan of that that single, I think it was a grey reef shark, actually contributed way, way more over time. Mm -hmm. And it was very similar legislation, um, not legislation, sorry, it was a very similar piece of research um, done about manta rays and how much a manta ray was worth across its whole lifetime rather, rather than that, you know, once it's dead, it's dead. You can't get any more economic touristic value from it um, then that also helped drive the the protection of the uh, manta ray sanctuary, which covers the whole of Indonesia. 
So I think I totally agree with you in what you're saying that we really should be supporting ecotourism as a way to help sharks. And I also think it's incredibly important to note here that, you know, with everything that's gone on with COVID in the last, uh, you know, over a year now, um, how important it is to also support those in local communities who are running touristic yes. op operations and not just the resorts, um, the big, big resorts that, you know, most people do travel to the Maldives for that luxury experience. I complete, completely agree with you there, Mads. And I also thought, um, Jess, your comment about kind of the social responsibility of the consumer. So, you know, who doesn't want to go to the Maldives and get an up-close interaction with a whale shark? And both all of us have had incredible interactions in the water with these animals and nothing compares. But I think that we need to understand that we're driving these bad behaviors that we're seeing these operators um, kind of adopt. And that we actually, if we, as you say, turn around and say, hey, it's quite obvious this shark is distressed, or hey, I don't think it's actually a good idea that there's a hundred people in the water with this one shark at the moment, that you know, we should say mm. that and take that responsibility upon ourselves because I think we quite often forget that. And Sure, it's a lot of money to pay to necessarily go to somewhere like the Maldives and everyone wants to have that crazy experience. And I feel like social media also drives that. You know, we post all of the best bits on social media. People see these incredible interactions you can have in the Maldives. But ultimately, if we're truthful about, you know, the fact that sometimes these interactions aren't actually, you know, brilliant, that actually, you know, some of these operators are stressing these animals out and they're getting injured as a consequence um i think that would have a far-reaching impact if we actually started to do that so i thought brilliant brilliant point thank you yeah i mean you, yeah you said it way better than i ever could um yeah we just need to kind of help raise awareness and be aware of the impact that we could potentially be having on these animals mm-hmm Indeed, completely, completely agree. Well, I think that is just about all we have time for today. Jess, thank you so much for coming on the podcast. It has been absolutely brilliant to chat about your research with you. And of course, when you finish your PhD, we would also love to hear more then as well. And yes. for the time being, uh, where can people go to find you or more information about you or you know, get in touch if they so wish? That is a good question. Um, so I'm on the Maldives Whale Shark Research Programme website. Uh, and my email is there. If you just Google my name, loads of different contact methods come up. Um, <laughs> so yeah, just uh, feel free to email with any questions or comments and I'll get back to you. Thank you so much for having me. It's been great. Brilliant. Thanks, Jess. Thanks, Jess. been listening to the women in ocean science podcast brought to you by women in ocean science and hosted by me mad st Clair, and charlie young if you enjoyed the podcast don't forget to give it a share and you can find us on socials as at women in ocean science we are a non-profit organization so every like comment share and bit of support goes such a long way in helping us to elevate the voices of the women working to protect the ocean and helps us to continue on our mission thanks for tuning in guys and i hope you have an awesome week